Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. First of all, just want to um, acknowledge it's been a, a good day for news, at least if you're from Berkeley. Gosh, so now, now, now the now the debates begin, but um, at least it still might be possible for. 30 million people to get health care who need it. Uh, the, the Supreme Court upheld the, uh, the Health Care Reform Act. Um, wow. You, know, you, 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 gotta, you gotta really rejoice with every positive step. Not, not to miss it. Because it's so easy to focus on all the things that are that are wrong or that seem crazy and insane and the mind goes you know where are we headed you know does your mind ever go that down that road what what are we doing to ourselves and to this planet what are we doing and will we wake up and will we wake up in time as uh my friend Roger Walsh says it, it seems like we're we're in a race between fear and consciousness and i believe that in the end consciousness trumps fear um it's just a matter of uh, a uh there's a, a time element here. That's why I'm calling this uh, the series of talks um, the appropriate response um, at the tipping point. Because we, in many people's minds, and I'm sure you've been reading actually in, recently in the news, we're we're at a tipping point in in our in our evolution and the planet's um, um, evolution. Uh, as far as life on it. And uh, we better wake up soon. So I wanted to um, share with you a few things as as we uh, continue on with this series. Um, The first is um, an essay that uh, I've found very inspiring that was um, that was uh, shared with me uh, recently and I'm actually I know it's not it's not good form to do a lot of reading in a a lecture Um, but I'm going to read a a chunk of this essay Uh, not all of it but a chunk of it because it's Articulated in a way that um, much better than I, I can. Uh, it's it's by um, Ernest Collenbach, who um, recently passed away. He he uh, passed away in April, April sixteenth, and he was a professor at Cal and a, a real visionary who wrote a book called Ecotopia, um, a number of years ago, and. Uh, Eco, um, what is it? Ecotopia emerging. Yeah, uh, was uh, was this, was another book, and he, he was this amazing visionary who um, it was. It's an, a novel of what the possibilities of humanity might look like if we really woke up. And, and this was written in the uh, early seventies, I think. 
Unfortunately, it's still ahead of its time, way ahead of its time. Um, and uh, this was uh, before he passed away. Uh, he wrote what he what is called an epistle to the Ecotopians um, that was found on his computer after he passed away. It was like his last reflections on where we're heading with um, a hopeful possibility. And it's just really, it's, it's really beautiful. If you Google Epistle to the Ecotopians um, or uh, Epistle and probably Kallenbach, that'll, that'll do it. It's, it's from uh, Tom, uh, Tom Dispatch, uh, this, this blog that uh, it's really a, a progressive um, um, visionary blog. So I'm going to read parts of it that give inspiration as to the possibility. Um, to all brothers and sisters who hold the dream in their hearts of a future world in which humans and all other beings live in harmony and mutual support, a world of sustainability, stability, and confidence, a world something like the one I described so long ago in Ecotopia and Ecotopia Emerging. As I survey my life, which is coming near its end, I want to set down a few thoughts that might be useful to those coming after. It will soon be time for me to give back to Gaia the nutrients that I've used during a long, busy, and happy life. I'm not bitter or resentful at the approaching end. I've been one of the extraordinary, extraordinarily lucky ones. So it behooves me here to gather together some thoughts and attitudes that may prove useful in the dark times we are facing, a century or more of exceedingly difficult times. How will those who survive manage it? What can we teach our friends, our children, our communities? Although we may not be capable of changing history, how can we equip ourselves to survive it? I contemplate these questions in the full consciousness of my own mortality. Being offered an actual number of likely months to live, even though the estimate is uncertain, mightily focuses the mind. On personal things, of course, on loved ones and even loved things, but also on the big picture. But let us begin with last things first for a change. The analysis will come later for those who wish it. And then he lays out different qualities that are needed to see through the hard times that lie ahead. So I wanted to share with you the qualities that he feels will be most important. One. Hope. Children exude hope even under the most terrible conditions, and that must inspire us as our conditions get worse. Hopeful patients recover better. Hopeful test candidates score better. Hopeful builders construct better buildings. Hopeful parents produce secure and resilient children. In groups, an atmosphere of hope is essential to shared successful effort. Yes, we can is not an empty slogan, but a mantra for people who intend to do something together, whether it's rescuing victims of hurricanes, rebuilding flood-damaged buildings on higher ground, helping wounded people through first aid, or inventing new social structure, structures, perhaps one in which only people are persons, not corporations, we cannot know what threats we will face, but ingenuity against adversity is one of our species' built-in resources. We cope, and faith in our coping capacity is perhaps the biggest resource of all. And this is something I have often um, reflected on and uh, used to motivate myself um, that is to somehow hold a positive vision of the best case scenario. Who knows what that is? Okay. But if we, if we throw in the towel and just say, 
what's the point? It's hopeless. Then what we do is contribute to that despairing energy, which just can find lots of company in the the soup of human consciousness and finds itself, resonates with others who have that vision. Of course, we can't be, you know, pie in the sky and thinking everything is going to be fine, but along with knowing how difficult the times will probably be, to have a, a vision, an inspiring vision, what you do is you contribute to holding that in the consciousness, and that in itself is magnetizing and uh, energizing and finds others who have that kind of consciousness. And just like when, you know, the last election, when there was kind of a groundswell of yes, we can, um, that was, you know, a paradigm shift in um, some feeling of caring and consciousness and the audacity of hope, actually, as I think about it, um, that there's a possibility. So who knows what's going to happen? But to hold that vision of the best case scenario is is something that's not only uh, it doesn't only feel good inside, but is also a gift in the larger consciousness. Again, not to live in denial, but just to, uh, what was it Coleridge, I think, talked about suspension of disbelief, you know, where instead of thinking, I know how it's going to end up, we don't know. Nobody knows. We can have an idea of where things might be heading, but all kinds of possibilities are still in the air. Second, after hope, mutual support, another essential quality. People who do best at basic survival skills, survival tasks, we know experimentally as well as intuitively, are cooperative, good at teamwork, often altruistic, mindful of the common good. In drastic emergencies like hurricanes or earthquakes, people surprise us by their sacrifice of food, of shelter, even sometimes of life itself. Those who survive social or economic collapse or wars or pandemics or starvation will be those who manage scarce resources fairly. Hoarders and dominators win only in the short run and end up dead, exiled, or friendless. So in every way, in every way we can, we need to help each other and our children learn to be cooperative rather than competitive, to be helpful rather than hurtful, to look out for the communities of which we are a part and on which we ultimately depend. Third quality that he sees is essential, practical skills. With the movement into cities of the U.S. population and much of the rest of the world's people, we have had a massive de-skilling in how to do practical tasks. When I was a boy in the country, all of us knew how to build a treehouse or construct a small hut or raise chickens or grow beans or screw pipes together to deliver water. It was a sexist world, of course, so when some of my chums in eighth grade said we wanted to learn girls' home ec skills, like making bread or boiling eggs, the teachers were shocked, but we got to do it. There was widespread competence in fixing things, impossible with most modern contrivances. We all need to learn or relearn how we would keep the rudiments of life going if there were no paid specialists around or means to pay them. Every child should learn elementary carpentry, from layout and sawing to driving nails. Everybody should know how to chop wood safely and build a fire. Everybody should know what to do if dangers appear from fire, flood, electric wires down, and the like. Taking care of each other is one practical step at a time, most of them requiring help from at least one other person. Survival is a team sport. 
next. There's two more of these. Organize. Much of the American ideology, our shared and unusually unspoken assumptions, is hyper-individualistic. We like to imagine that heroes are solitary, have superpowers, and glory in violence, and that if our work lives and business lives seem tamer, underneath they are still struggles red in blood and claw. We have sought solitude on the prairies, as cowboys on the range, in our dependence on media rather than real people, and even in our cars, armored cabins of solitude. We have an uneasy and doubting attitude about government, as if we all reserve the right to be outlaws. But of course, human society, like ecological webs, is a complex stance of mutual support and restraint. And if we're lucky, it operates by laws openly arrived at and approved by the populace. If the teetering structure of corporate domination with its money control of Congress, monetary control of Congress and other institutions should collapse of its own greed and the government be unable to rescue it, we have to reorganize a government that suits the people. When the group recognizes its group powers, it can limit these any distortions that happen. Thinking together is enormously creative. It has huge survival value. And lastly, learn to live with contradiction. These are dark times. These are bright times. We are implacably making the planet less habitable. Every time a new oil field is discovered, the press cheers, hooray, there's more fuel for the self-destroying machines. We are turning more land into deserts and parking lots. We're wiping out innumerable species that not only are wondrous and beautiful, but might also be useful to us. We're multiplying to the point where our needs and our wastes outweigh the capacities of the biosphere to produce and absorb them. And yet, despite despite the bloody headlines and the rocketing military budgets, we are also unbelievably killing fewer of each other proportionately than in earlier centuries. We have mobilized enormous global intelligence and mutual curiosity through the internet and outside it. We've even evolved spottily a global understanding that democracy is better than tyranny, that love and tolerance are better than hate, that hope is better than rage and despair, that we're prone, especially in catastrophes, to be astonishingly helpful and cooperative. We may even have begun to share an understanding that while the dark times may continue for generations, in time, new growth and regeneration will begin. In the biological process called succession, a desolate, disturbed area is gradually, by a predictable sequence of returning plants, restored to ecological continuity and durability when old institutions and habits break down or consume themselves, new experimental shoots begin to appear, and people explore and test and share new and better ways to survive together. It's never easy or simple, but already we see under the crumbling surface of the conventional world promising developments, new ways of organizing economic activity, like cooperatives, worker-owned companies, nonprofits, trusts, new ways of using low-impact technology to capture solar energy, to sequester carbon dioxide, new ways of building compact, congenial cities that are low in energy use or even self-sufficient, low in waste production, high in recycling of almost everything, a vision of sustainability that sometimes shockingly resembles ecotopia is tremulously coming into existence at the hands of people who've never heard of the book. And then just a little at the end, where he says, When disasters strike and institutions falter, as at the end of empires, it does not mean that the buildings all fall down and everybody dies. Life goes on, and in particular, the remaining people fashion new institutions that they hope will better ensure their survival. 
So I look to a long-term process of succession, as the biological concept has it, where disturbances kill off an ecosystem, but little by little new plants colonize the devastated area, prepare the soil for larger and more complex plants and other beings who depend on them, and finally the process achieves a flourishing, resilient, complex state, not necessarily what was there before, but durable and richly productive. In a similar way, experiments underway now all over the world are exploring how sustainability can in fact be achieved locally. I have become less confident of humans' political ability to act on common sense, shared values. Our era has become one of spectacular polarization, with folly multiplying on every hand. That is the way empires crumble. They're taken over by looter elites, who sooner or later cause collapse but then new games become possible. Humans tend to try to manage things, land, structures, even rivers. We spend enormous amounts of time, energy, and treasure in imposing our will on nature, on pre-existing or inherited structures, dreaming of permanent solutions, monuments to our ambitions and dreams. But in periods of slack, decline, or collapse, our abilities no longer suffice for all this management. We have to let things go. All things go somewhere. They evolve with or without us into new forms. So as the decades pass, we should try not always to futilely fight these transformations. As the Japanese know, there's, a much, unno there's much unnoticed beauty in wabi-sabi, the old, the worn, the tumble-down, those things beginning their transformation into something else, we can embrace this process of devolution, embellish it with, when strength avails, learn to love it. There is beauty in weathered and unpainted wood, in orchards overgrown, even in abandoned cars being incorporated into the earth. Let us learn, like the Forest Service sometimes does, to put unwise and unneeded roads to bed, help a little in the healing of the natural contours, the revegetation by native plants. Let us embrace decay, for it is the source of all new life and growth. Hmm. I mean, that, that is the, the question and the task. Um, when your mind has a hard time wrapping around it all and making sense of it all, to at some point let go of what you think you know and for me it's a in the bigger scheme of things, the, what the Dharma perspective always does is it it opens up to a much larger sense of time rather than this thin slice called now or called this year or this decade and see that there is a natural law that we are a part of and that life um, finds its own new ways with or without humanity but hopefully we can be um, participating in a new creative possibility so given that that's that's a kind of backdrop I, I wanted to share as a as a way that we can hold some vision i wanted to um now start exploring from this book that i i mentioned before the break it's called from me to we and the subtitle is the five Transformational Commitments Required to Rescue the Planet, Your Organization, and Your Life.
by um, Bob Doppelt, who um, is a a systems expert, executive director for the Resource Innovation Group, a sustainability and climate change education research and technical assistance organization. And it's connected with Willamette Willamette uh, University, and also he he teaches at the University of Oregon, has written a a number of books on sustainable thinking. Um, But he's an old uh, uh, Dharma friend. He he sat with me, oh, 25 years ago at uh, Brighton Bush. Uh, I used to teach there regularly, and he and his partner um, came, uh, would come on retreats. And he and he's taking the, the joy course now, and he said, um, hey, you might not remember me, but uh, I'm taking this joy course. I really like it, um, and I've written a book that I just want you to know about. And um, I did remember him, and then when he sent it to me, it was, you know when you, sometimes you get something and it kind of sits on your on your shelf for a little while, on your, your nightstand, oh, I've got to, I should pick that up and kind of at least honor him and say that I read a little bit of it, um, you know, that, that kind, you know, because um, I, I do get a fair number of books uh, sent to me, but the fact that it was thin helped a lot, right, <laughs> and besides, and then it was, there was the inquiring mind issue, and there were, uh, there was this, um, this beautiful piece by uh, Ernest Kallenbach, and there was that book, and I started looking at it. I said, oh, this is good. This is really good. Because um, what he, he does is um, look at some basic Dharma principles that are not new, will not be new to any of you. I'm probably but to see them in the context of the key, the keys to shift our consciousness, what would be needed to make that shift, and the the not seeing of which is keeping us bound in Ignorance, confusion, and suffering. So, um, <laughs> so, <laughs> I used to do it like this a lot. Anyway, it's okay. I can just do it this way. So, um, these Dharma principles, actually, uh, when I, I look at the word Dharma, when I think of the word Dharma, the word Dharma is often translated as nature or the natural law. And a lot of the Buddha's teachings uh, were... Um, based on or seeing how things work in nature. And he would say, you know, there, there are trees and roots of trees. Go sit in nature and see how life works. And in that being part of nature and looking at the mind and body in that context, you become more connected to basic principles of life. And so it, it's, it was kind of interesting when I, I thought about it. He, he doesn't, he doesn't uh, in the very beginning, he says something about the Buddha um, in the, um, I think, preface or uh, introduction or something, just a little bit. But other than that, there's no Buddhist jargon in this book. It's, it's for any mainstream person but it's filled with, it's based on Buddha Dharma. These five principles are five Dharma principles. Uh, 
And when uh, just returning to that, that definition, oh, these Dharma principles are understanding the natural law, the laws of nature, to apply them to the planet is really um, what deep ecology is about. Not just, oh yeah, it's really important to recycle and, uh, and to do our part and to you know, not contribute to, uh, to further pollution and to you know, shop locally and um, like that, but to see the underlying um, consciousness that will save us is, is a whole other uh, way of bringing practice into this situation. <clears throat> and as he says, and as I said before in, in that previous essay, says we are right now at a moment of choice. We're at a choice point in, in our evolution and his title, From Me to We, is the essence of the choice point that we live in our society, as, as uh, Ernest Kallenbach said, that glorifies the individual. And to, first of all, shift from that, that erroneous idea that that is where um, where true happiness and true fulfillment lie to see quite the opposite that is a certain prescription for doom um, this is somehow the task that all of these principles point to to move from me to we. And he makes the point, he, he talks about um, Eric Erickson, probably many of you are familiar with the stages of human development and growth that uh, the great psychologist Eric Erickson um, put forth in his theory of, of human development, where we start off completely absorbed in me, you know, and my Physi physiological and emotional needs. The whole, the first few years, the first year or two, the 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 infant is completely is so me centered that the whole world is me. But gradually, over time, from childhood and adolescence, um, and then moving from. Uh, into young adulthood where you start seeing the importance of connections and love uh, and into greater and greater maturity, there's a movement towards development being seen, the, ha the, the, the fulfillment and the happiness coming from feeling greater and greater connection beyond ourselves and the true happiness comes in um, living a life of contribution, both to those around us, connection of love and contribution to those around us, and even vision of the future, future generations as well. And this is the same as is said in uh, positive psychology, where authentic happiness, as Martin Seligman puts forth, that authentic, true happiness isn't about getting as much as you can, as fast as you can, but the genuine, deeper, fulfilling happiness comes from finding out what your gifts are and sharing them with the world. Again, it's that movement from what's in it for me to what do I have to offer, what do I have to give. And we are, as, as Bob puts it, um, in this um, kind of thinks of it we're in an adolescent stage of human development where we're moving hopefully from you know 
showing our power and our oats to seeing, oh, how can I, um, how can I feel greater connection to others in this, in this world? And that in different periods of time over the course of human history, there has been a back and forth going from me to we. He makes the point that hunter-gatherers were completely about me and getting my, our needs met. And then they, um, they need, when agriculture came, there was a need to organize and um, and help each other and have more of a of course you help each other in the in the hunt as well but in in agriculture there was a shift to more of a of a, a collective and then going into cities and organizing on that level and there have been back and forth different times in history like in the time of the Buddha which was the same time as um, Taoism and uh, Lao Tzu in, uh, in, in China and the Golden Age in Greece, it seemed to be that was an era of consciousness to some extent. You know, I, wanna, I don't want to glorify it, but there was some kind of consciousness in human thinking at that time that... Um, brought out some of the greatest ideas of um, of the importance of seeing that we're part of something bigger, and then going through oh, the dark ages, and then feudalism, and then the uh, collective where we had to organize again, whether it's around church or around country which each time had its own shadow. But then there was the age of reason and the period of enlightenment where we're individuals. And we've been kind of growing out of that age of, of, of reason where it's all about um, the individual and now moving hopefully into a, a new era of, of the we. But to... At this choice point, sustainability depends on um, looking carefully and and thinking about moving towards this feeling of connection, this shift of life, of, of our perspective in life. So the five, I'll just give an overview, the five principles, the five commitments that he talks about. And we'll just do the first one this evening. First one, see the systems you are a part of, which is the understanding of the fact that we're all connected, really seeing deeply into interconnectedness, into... um, the Buddhist concept of emptiness, really, and anatta, all come under this commitment. And I'll talk about that in a few moments. Second commitment, be accountable for all the consequences of your actions. Just seeing the law of cause and effect. Third, abide by society's most deeply held universal principles of morality and justice. Fourth, acknowledge your trustee obligations and take responsibility for the continuation of all life. That is um, compassion, compassionate action. And the fifth, choose your own destiny, which is the, the principle of uh, intention and vision. And the more consciously we can choose and take on these commitments, the, the greater our Dharma practice is both not only internally but externally and it kind of aligns with, oh, this is my part in this, in this puzzle.
So, the first. See the systems you are a part of. You've probably all heard the um, the concept of emptiness. And emptiness really is meaning emptiness, empty of a separate self. Emptiness that there is nothing separate, as uh, John Muir said. Um, I wrote it down here somewhere. Yeah, when you try to pick out anything by itself, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe. You you can't separate anything out. Or Thich Nhat Hanh has the example of a, a piece of paper. He says you take a look at a piece of paper, and all of life is in this paper. When you look deeply at it, there's the tree that made this paper and the rain and the sun and the logger and the logger's family and everything that went into the production and and the earthworms and tilling the soil and the nutrients, everything can be found in the sheet of paper. And in the same way, when you see yourself as part of a larger system, it shifts your limited worldview. Now, I I want to uh, uh, read another little passage that I love from um, Lewis Thomas. Anybody read Lives of a Cell? It's a, a fabulous other thin book um, written many years ago. Uh, Lives of a Cell by Lewis Thomas. And this is at the very beginning of the book to really give you a sense of on the most fundamental level the fact that you are not separate from anything, from everything. A good case can be made for our non-existence as entities. We are not made up, as we had always supposed, of successively enriched packets of our own parts. We are shared, rented, occupied. At the interior of our own cells, driving them, providing the oxidative energy that sends us out for the improvement of each shining day, are mitochondria, and in a strict sense, they are not ours. They turn out to be little separate creatures, replicating in their own fashion, privately, with their own DNA and RNA, quite different from ours. Without them, we would not move a muscle, drum a finger, think a thought. Mitochondria are stable and responsible lodgers, and I choose to trust them. But what of the other little animals similarly established in my cells, sorting and balancing me, clustering me together, my centrioles, basal bodies, and probably a good many other more obscure tiny beings at work inside my cells, each with its own special genome, are as foreign and as essential as um, aphids in anthills. My cells are no longer the pure line entities I was raised with. They are ecosystems more complex than Jamaican Bay. I like to think that they work in my interest, that each breath they draw for me. But perhaps it is they who walk through the local park in the early morning, sensing my senses, listening to my music, thinking my thoughts. That's what's really going on. And if you, uh, you probably know, you know, that you have 
trillions of bacteria, billions and billions, I should say, of bacteria in your stomach, in your mouth. I love that line Wes Nisker has, that there's more living organisms in your mouth right now than there have been humans since the beginning of time. <laughs> it's true. And without that, those bacteria, you're a goner. You are an ecosystem. That's a, an interesting way to think of yourself. But that's how it works. And when you, he, he talks about, Bob talks about just seeing the world in terms of systems, seeing this emptiness of separate self, this law of interdependence or interconnectedness. You see, there's no separate me. Then who are you? Who are you serving? Who is, it, who is the you that is wanting things better? If you're an ecosystem, then you're representing a whole lot of beings right in here. And when you, you think about this, as he says that there's systems nested in larger systems, nested in larger systems, if you see how it's all held together, we're, con- we're part of many, many systems, both from the micro to the macro, where are you in that in that continuum, when you think about it, the mitochondria or the cells, and when a couple of cells go haywire, it affects the whole system, doesn't it? And the cells work together and create a, a functional tissue, which is different in your kidneys than it is in your lungs or your heart or any other organ, and your organs are working together in a complex way, balance, that creates this pattern of life called you, and that you are part of other systems, starting with your family system, but moving beyond and beyond and beyond, from family to tribe to perhaps geographical region to city, state, country, planet, solar system, galaxy, universe. Where does it, where does it stop and, and you draw a line around and say, this is me and there's life out there. That's just a, a, a very narrow perception of things. And unfortunately, one of the perceptions that we have not seen, or one of the perceptions that we've fallen into misunderstanding is the perception of humans separate from the rest of life. Because we think in terms of economic systems, at least that's what's driving our, our worldview, and in those economic systems, growth can be measured in how many units are consumed. And the whole understanding of the whole system needing to be in balance to, uh, to thrive, thrive is missed. And so that's where the real dysfunction comes, just not seeing the systems that you are a part of. So... Uh, I'd like to just uh, lead us in a little reflection um, that can perhaps uh, get in touch with that aspect of systems. And you know, it's it's a little warm in here. I wonder if you. I had the uh, the fan on before. You know where the fan is? It's in. Uh, maybe turn on the, uh, the the fan from 
In that circle, thanks, Jaime. In there, no, it's inside, yeah, you know where it is. Because when it's warm, then part of the system says, oh, this is a little bit, okay. <clears throat> Go ahead, more. We can handle it for a few minutes. Turn it up. Come on. Come on. Good. Crank it up. <laughs> Come on, I mean, I just had it going before. You got it? Is that, did it stop? Oh, oh, there's a round circle right in the, uh, twist it all the way. Ah, there you go. See how noticing one little shift in the system has a big effect on your body. Okay. Okay. So just uh, close your eyes for a moment. And um, first... Get a sense of all the beings who've come before you, who've given and passed on love and caring and understanding. You might start with the ones that you've received directly, kindness and caring and wisdom and support. And get in touch with the next generation back where they've received their own kindness and caring and love and wisdom that was passed on through your benefactors to you. And back generations, all the, the lineage of caring and kindness and goodness and compassion and wisdom that's been passed through the generations that has come through those beings and poured into you, into your heart, into your mind, that you've been the beneficiary of. That you're part of a lineage of caring and consciousness that's continually evolved and coming through you right now. And think of all the people now who are touched by your own goodness and caring. Maybe friends, relatives, children, people in your life who you extend that caring and kindness to and how that ripples out and how it will ripple out through future generations who does that belong to Who does your caring belong to? Who does your good heart or your love belong to? It's just been passed on and you've been a fortunate recipient. 
and you can pass it on, you do pass it on. And now for a moment, reflect on all the, the beings who have had an impact on you, one way or another, who shaped who you are. Through experiences, through interactions. and all the beings who you impact in your own unique way. And now for a moment, move out of just the limiting human realm and reflect on all the beings right inside of you right now who go into keeping your ecosystem in balance. And all the sources of food that go into your mouth through your alimentary canal, digested into your body for nutrients, for fuel, passed on. The whole recycling process of life, it's just life moving through this form. and the essential importance to keep that life in balance. And all the systems that you're part of. See the systems that you are part of. the first commitment to bringing more consciousness to this planet. You are not separate. You are simply a vehicle for life to express itself. And the more you see that and care about it, the more you naturally are in harmony with it. So just as we close, since it's time to close, just appreciate the web of life running through you, called you, and that you are connected with all around you and send some love and appreciation, well-being inside and outside. May I care about this being and the systems that it is part of. May I keep in mind my connection with all of life and allow the love and kindness to shine through me. And may all beings find happiness and peace. So, thank you for your attention. And this week I would really encourage you to just kind of play around with seeing yourself part of something much bigger 
on an ongoing uh, practice perspective. Life is just moving through you, in you, within you, without you. Okay, see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.